The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, we have all been hearing, seeing headlines about the epidemic of rape on college campuses, but not a lot seems to be being done about it. You know, a lot of noise, a lot of, oh, yes, we should do something, but uh, meanwhile, um, women are getting raped uh, in incredible numbers across the country. Today's guest is one of those women, but instead of doing what so many women do, which is um, primarily not to report it at all, or if they report it, to sort of hide in the shadows, um, this woman has come forward. And not only did she come forward um, to her college, but she came forward and faced the trial uh, of the three rapists. And, um, and she came forward, even though, you know, the uh, standard is to not give out the victim's name, she, um, and they insisted on using a, a fictitious name at the trial, Afterwards, she insisted upon coming out with her name, coming out with her story. And, in fact, um, she has written a book about her story called Kill the Silence, A Survivor's Life Reclaimed. Uh, Indeed, her story is incredibly inspirational because from this ruthless rape, um, she uh, has survived and thrived and um, is teaching us how to do some, how to do the same thing when adversity strikes. Um, Monica is from Norway, so you will hear her accent. <laughs> so, Monica, first of all, welcome to the show. And if you can you. Um, speak a little slowly, so that we can all, <laughs> so that we can all hear every little word, um, because Absolutely. your story, your story is just amazing. Um, why don't you start out with actually before. Um, you came to the United States, what your life was like in Norway. Right. So, yes, I'm from Norway. I grew up here with my family, my two parents and my one older sister. My whole life, um, athletics has been important for me. Um, I've been a skier and a runner since, I don't know, I was three or four years old. So that's always been my great passion in life. Um, And I turned into a highly competitive athlete. And in 2007, after I had competed in some international races um, in track and field, I received a phone call from a coach in America. Um, and he called me to offer me a scholarship to come and represent his team in Dallas. And to me, that was just a, a dream come true, really, because I was able then to go to the United States to, to really follow my dream to become a professional runner. So I told him right away that... I will be there. Send me the uh-huh. paperwork, and and I will be there. And yes, that must, have, that must years, have been that must have been amazing. Did did your parents or your sister um, were they in athletics, or you know how did did they in any um, at any time encourage you to do this? I mean, when you said you started running when you were a little girl, um, did they were they like surprised that uh, you were so talented in this area, or how did that come about? No, so the thing is, um, growing up in Norway, it's it's normally the whole family that goes out together. Every weekend, we went out skiing together. And both my mom and dad and sister, we went for runs together. And so it's it's a family thing that we do together. Um, huh. And that I developed into a competitive athlete. That was 
maybe surprising to them, but um, I just love to compete and to, to push my limits. And they were really supportive in, in all of it. Every weekend they followed me out to races, drove me around, did the laundry, prepared yeah. for it. So they've been really important in, in athletics for me. Uh-huh. Okay. So when this opportunity came, even though they were... I guess a little hesitant to send you off to the big bad United States, <laughs> but still they realized what an opportunity it was. Exactly, and that that's what they told me. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity, and they just encouraged me to to do it. They know how much I love running, and they realized what an opportunity this was for me. Uh huh. So okay, so you hop, you got the scholarship, you hopped on a plane, and uh, take it from there. Yeah, so then in August of 2008, I went over to Dallas. Uh, it was quite a transition at first, I have to admit. Uh, coming from Norway, I didn't know much English at the time. I didn't know anyone there. So it was a challenging few months at first. Um, but I had the team around me and got close friends quickly. Uh, and I had the coaches that took care of me. So I really started to enjoy it, and I adjusted to a new way of life. Um, so, so I really enjoyed it. I had a good time in Dallas. Uh huh. Uh huh. And um, were the, I mean, how was it on the team? Were they like you said they became very friendly? What did they? Was it that they realized that you could really help the team win, um, or were they kind of jealous of you in some way, or how did that work? Oh, no, not not jealous. We, um, competing in cross-country and track, you, you compete for your own sake and for the team. We were competing as a team in, in most competitions. Um, it's all about earning points for the team. So we supported mm-hmm. each other and, and shared for each other. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of support in that, and in everyday life, and at practice, and in every race. Uh huh. And then you had um, they offered a scholarship to uh, someone else from Norway, Christina. That's right. That's right. So I knew Christina from before from races in Norway that we had competed against each other, uh-huh. and Christina she was she was the big name in Norway. She was huh. the best middle best distance runner. Um, so when I heard that she was coming over, I was just thrilled um, because I had been looking up to her for a long, long time. So she came over and we connected right away and just became best friends. We moved in together, lived together, trained together, and, and did everything together from the day that she came over to Dallas. Uh-huh. So everything was going rosy. You were doing well on the team. The team was doing well. You now had um, someone who you were thrilled to be a friend of from Norway. It made it even better. And so life was wonderful until December 5th, 2009, when you were a sophomore. Take us to that That's night. That's right. That's right. So December 5th, 2009, uh, it was a normal day right before Christmas. We were studying for finals. Um, so everyone was focused but the season was over so we had a little break from that and during class that day one of our classmates asked us if we wanted to come over to this um, party that night Um, and we told him that well we'll see how far we get with our studying but that night we studied until about 9pm and then we figured that well As long as we don't have practice in the morning, maybe we should go out and socialize a little bit. Um, So we did. It was myself, Christina, and another girlfriend from our team that went to this party. Um, We had a friend that drove us there and told us that he would come back and pick us up as soon as we wanted to go back home to sleep. We stayed there for a few hours and really had a good time socializing with other athletes from SMU. But... Being athletes, normally getting up early in the morning, we got tired quickly. So we called our friend back after a few hours and told him that we were ready to go back home. So he turned up five minutes later, called me and told us that he was parked right outside. And as we walked out, we saw his car. It was right there on the street. We walked towards his car, and 
got as far as into his car that night. Suddenly I heard screaming, and before I knew it, I had two men grabbing me from behind, and I had a gun placed in it. Wait a second. So this was... um so this was, in other words, he pulled up to where the party was, and this was in front of where the where the party was. Where was the party? Like in a frat house or somebody's apartment, or what was? Where was the party? Yeah, it was an apartment off campus. Okay, and so so this happened right, um, like right where the party, right in front of the apartment house where the party was. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So everyone that was scary was. Several people standing outside, and they they saw it all. So it was it was that close. I mean, that's amazing that these people these these men um, would come where there were where there were witnesses. Exactly, exactly. It's unbelievable that they did it that way. Now, uh, well, okay, I don't want to really interrupt, but um, did went later? Did you find out? I mean, were these just? Men who were sort of random, there were three men, were they just sort of randomly um, walking around the neighborhood or did they know that there was, did they know anybody who was involved with the party? What did it turn out to be? Right. No, they were really, they were just driving around looking for trouble. Um, hmm. We figured out later that just a few minutes before they, they kidnapped me, they had robbed another person and they had been in a fight earlier that night. They had been dealing drugs. So they were just out causing trouble, really. Huh. Huh. So, okay. So they grabbed... So, uh, so I, uh, why don't you go back to where you were? So but when they grabbed you, didn't any, couldn't any of the other people who were from the party, um, or even the, the guy who came to pick you up, who was in the car, could, they, couldn't, they couldn't fight with the men, or they couldn't grab you away? Right. Right. Of course, they tried to do that. My friends, they tried to pull me towards them. But the thing was here that I had a gun next to my head. And when my friends tried to pull me towards them, they received a gun next to their heads. So there was mm. nothing that we could do. They just had to let go of me. Hmm. Oh, wow. Okay, go ahead. Hmm. Yeah. And the next second, I was pulled into this van and realized quickly what was about to happen because... Seconds later, they stripped me of my clothing. Um, it was three of them, and they started the rape right away. Um, they took all my jewelries. They raped me one at a time, two at a time, three at a time. Hmm. Oh. God, that's just unbelievable. So horrible. Um, yeah, go ahead. And did they bring you somewhere, or did they just keep you in the van the whole time? Right, and they drove around for a little while, they parked the van, so all of them could participate in the rape at the same time. Um, I understood that something was going on between the three of them, too, because they were clearly arguing. They were what? They they were what, did you say? They they were arguing among each Uh other, but they were speaking in Spanish, so I, I didn't understand much, but... I heard that they were yelling to each other and that it Hmm. was a lot of anger. Um, But I was, of course, my focus was where is the gun? Um, What is about to happen next? I just feared that I would lose my life. Yes. That was the thing for me. I just told myself to hold on and just do whatever it takes. Give them what it it takes to save your own life. That was my whole focus that night. Uh-huh. And it's it's really strange how our bodies um respond to something like this because we might think that in a situation like that the normal response is to fight and to try to to get away. But what happened was that I just had this freeze response. I didn't do anything. I just froze and really understood that if I fight these men, they will just charm me even more. Mm, because mm-hmm. as soon as I tried to push away or reject what they were doing to me, I could just feel the tension growing um, and that they just used more force um, to push me down to do whatever they, they wanted to do to me. Mm-hmm. 
So I have no idea how, how long it went on for. To me, it just felt like days. Um, but after a while, they started to drive again. Um, and a while later, they placed duct tape in front of my eyes, and they pushed me out of the van. And they pushed you out of the van. Oh, they put the duct tape on so that, well, actually, I'm hearing the music here that we need to take a break. We will get back to that when we come back. Um, my guest is Monica Cora. Her, her book is Kill the Silence, A Survivor's Life Reclaimed. And obviously, you're beginning to hear just how she did that. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about college campus rape with um, a survivor who has not only survived um, her own rape, but who has been brave enough to write about it, come out and talk about it uh, in lectures, and to try to encourage women um, who have been raped to not hide in the shadows, but to come out and confront their rapists, put them, testify at trial, and uh, regain their life, reclaim their life. So um, we were, before the break, we were talking about um, how you were in the van? Now you were you started to say how they, that they put a um, that they put duct tape uh, over. They, what were you trying to say? Right, they did. They covered my eyes before they pushed me out of the van. But but had you but you had seen them already when they first attacked you? Didn't you see their faces? Exactly. So I don't know if it makes any sense that they did that because I saw them through all throughout the the rape. So uh-huh. but they decided to do so before they pushed me out. Huh. Maybe um Well yeah, it kinda doesn't make sense why they would why they would do that unless unless there was something maybe was it was it daylight by the, when they let you go? Uh well yeah, it was starting to get light outside. It was. So maybe that was it. I had, yeah, no, I don't know. I don't even know if they had thought it all through. I think it was just something they came, came up with there uh-huh. right that second. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I was thinking maybe like uh, even though you had seen them that you'd be able to see them better or you'd be able to see what was in the van better because I know you said that, um, I mean, not, <laughs> not today, but I've read that um, or I've seen other interviews where you've said, um, that you, while you were being raped, while you were in the van, uh, that you saw other shoes, women's shoes in the van, and you thought to yourself that they must have done this before. Exactly. No, that was kind of a turning point to me that night. Um, 
that at one moment I saw another shoe, a woman's shoe in the van. And that's when I realized that they have done this before. And to me, that just brought up anger. Uh, and I think that was a healthy response because I realized in that second that I have to survive this and I have to turn them into the police, make sure that they cannot harm anyone ever again the way they harmed me. And that's something that I've been holding on to in the time after. And I think that's one of the reasons why I really want to focus on the work that I'm doing now to, to help other victims and to, to talk about the issue of rape and abuse out loudly because we need, we really need to do work to change this because we know that it happens all over the world every day. Yes. So, um, uh, did, did you ever, we're, we're going to talk about the trial in a minute, but did you ever find out either, th- I, I guess, through the trial or um, whether, in fact, like how many other women they had raped or whether they had killed any other women? No, uh, we never heard any of that, and I still don't know who that shoe belonged to. Hmm. Wow. But it gave you the, uh, it brought out the anger that helped you fight. And I know you, you kept saying to them, um, you can do, essentially, you can do what you want to me, but I just don't kill me. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Those aren't your words. What did, what you tell us? What did you say? No, for me, that was the thing. I just kept begging, please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. That was the thing, the words that I just repeated over and over and over. And do you think that that, um, do you think they would have killed you if you hadn't done that, hadn't been saying that over and over? I have no idea why they didn't kill me that night. Um, and that's still something that I question because I, I, I don't understand. It doesn't really make sense with a horrible crime like this. Um, that was the thing that what I expected, that they would just get rid of me because to to me, it felt like I was just garbage to them, um, not a human being at all. Um, but luckily, uh, I have no idea why, but they decided to push me out and let me live. And they pushed you out into a, on, on the street. Um, and how far away were you from the college or from the party or from your own house? Right. So I, when they pushed me out, and after a while, I was able to uh, take off the duct tape. Um, I had no idea where I was. I don't know how far away from home I was, and and all I wanted was really just to find my way back home. But at that point, I I was lost, and I had never seen that area before. Uh huh. And so, how did you get found? So I think at first, I think I just run in circles um, and I tried to come up with a plan because at that point after something like this happens you just lose all kind of trust in the world in people uh, so to me I, I just wanted to, to find my way back home on my own I didn't want uh-huh. to ask for help because I was scared at that point uh-huh. but I realized after a while that, that I needed to ask for help because I was lost and it was cold outside and I didn't have any clothes so, oh, oh, yeah. You know, I, I really have. That's right. So they threw you out of the van, and you were naked. Exactly, exactly. But luckily, um, after I was able to take off the duct tape, I found my dress. It was outside, so I was able to put that back on. But that was all that I had. Um, I was barefoot, and it was it was freezing outside. So after a while, I figured that I need to knock on some doors. I need to ask for help. So I did that, several houses, but no one opened. Hmm. Uh, I knocked over and over, but it was in the middle of the night uh, still, so no wonder why no one opened. Uh-huh. But then I, I figured that I need to go into the street and to try to stop a car. I did that for a while, but no car stopped. They just oh, wow. passed me. And I remember that so clearly, how some of them even looked me in, in my eyes, and they just passed. Oh, wow. But after a while, I was so desperate for help that I just decided that I have to just walk out in the middle of the street and stand there because then they have to stop. They have no choice. Uh-huh. Um, and that's when a van stopped. And 
a gentleman came out, and of course, at that point, I was still in shock. So I was scared, and I ran off when he walked out of the van. But he just mm. told me that, stay on a distance. I won't get any closer to you, but I will call the police, and you'll soon be safe. Um, huh. And that was right. A few minutes later, police cars came pulling up. I had a helicopter circling above me, and I realized at that point that I had survived. Huh. Oh, wow. So, okay. So then then what happened? So the police came. Um, they... Oh, the ambulance came, and they ran some quick tests on me just to see that I was, was doing okay. Um, I wanted the police to go back to the place where the man dropped me off because it was important to me right away to try to find them. Yes. The police officers, they agreed to come back there with me. And so we went back there, and after, they took me to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And in the hospital, of course, after something like this, uh, there's tests that you have to take. You need to be put on certain medications, HIV medicine, etc. Hmm. So it was a long night in the hospital uh, with, with testing. Um, and at that point, too, I just wanted to have someone around me that I trusted. So I kept begging for my friends to come down there. But they were at the police station um, talking to the police because they huh. had been calling the police uh, after I was taken. Uh-huh. So, but the next morning, uh, my friends finally were able to come down to the hospital and see me. They came down, and that's just still one of the greatest moments of my life, to see them again, to be able to hold them and hug them, and just cry together, and realized that this was over. Um, and a few hours later, we went back home to our apartment, and that's when I realized that this will be a recovery process for me. I will have to take a break from my normal life uh, to be able to find my way back. Uh-huh. Okay. And so then how did... Um, the police go about finding the men. Yes, so the thing was, they took my phone that night. And three days later, they turned my phone back on and they used it for drug dealing. And of course, the police were already pinging my phone after that night because they knew that they had it. So that led the police straight to find them. Huh. Wow, <laughs> they weren't very smart, rapists. <laughs> I mean, not that nope, exactly. <laughs> That's what I keep saying. Good thing that they were stupid. Wow. So okay, so they found them, and then what? Did you have to go down to the police station to do a lineup to identify them? Yes, we did a picture lineup before I got to know that they were already found. Oh. We went down to the police station to to do a picture lineup. Um, but after we were done doing that, the police told us that they already had them in custody. Huh. All huh. three of them. Okay. And then um, then what? Did they give you a choice of how did you decide or how did it come about that you testified at their trial? Right. So it took a while before the trial started. The first one started about a year after in December of 2010. Um, and I just, I was determined from day one that I wanted to do whatever I could to make sure that this man would be locked up for the rest of their life. So I knew that from the first meeting that I wanted to, to go through with that and to testify against them in court. Uh-huh. Were they locked, when, were they arrested and put in jail immediately once the police found them and you identified them? Did, were they in jail during that year during the, while they were awaiting trial? Yes, exactly. They were all in jail that year. Okay, okay so tell us about the trials. They each had yeah, their own so separate trial, or was it together? No, exactly. It was three separate trials. The first one in December of 2010, and the two others in April of 2011. 
Hmm. Wow. Really so drawn was, out. Uh, yeah. No, it was, and it was, it was challenging. It was tough the time leading up to the trials because I was nervous. Um, but I think it was a good thing that I had that whole year to prepare for it mentally and to mm-hmm. really work on my recovery before mm-hmm. the trial started. Mm-hmm. So when the first trial came up. I felt ready for it. I really did. But of course, I was nervous about seeing seeing him again because mm-hmm. I had no idea how I would react when I would see him if mm-hmm. I would cry if I would be scared or angry so that was right. the thing that I felt like I couldn't really prepare for mm-hmm. yeah. but as the day came and I went up to take the witness stand I just I felt strong I felt in control and I felt like he was the one that was scared that day um, and it was a good feeling to take that control back, uh, mm-hmm. the control that they had stolen from me a year earlier. So I think for me that it was a positive thing to be there present in the courtroom and to mm-hmm. also see with my own eyes, hear with my own ears that they received lifetime. Uh, that was a great comfort for me. Yes, that's amazing. So so tell us about each of them. Like, What did it turn out... Um, there were two who were brothers. They were all Hispanic, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And two of them were brothers. Is that yes. right? That's right. And so what, did, what was their defense? What did you learn about them? Well, that was the thing in the trial. They kept blaming each other. Um, Arturo, in the first trial, he denied that part of this at all. He just said, I haven't done anything wrong. It wasn't me. Um, He denied it the whole way through. Hmm. The other two, uh, they told um, everyone that I was a part of this, but they kept blaming each other. Uh, Well, the first trial, how many people, how was it divided? How many of of them were in the first trial? Only one. So it was all it was three separate trials. Okay. So so did the other um the other two testify against? I mean if they were blaming each other, so did the other two come to these each of the trials and blame and and say that it was this person? Uh so the first one was against Arturo that received lifetime. Um Louis Suniga, the one that received 25 years, testified against him in the first I, trial. I see. Yes. Uh-huh. So that that was important for the trial and for him to receive lifetime. And I think that that was the right thing to do even though we not we knew that that would lo- lower Louis's sentence. Uh we knew that, but I agreed upon that because I thought it was more important that Arturo would receive lifetime because he was clearly still living in denial. He didn't want to Acknowledged what he had done, and uh-huh. the other two did. So hmm. I'm glad that it ended up being that way. Uh huh. And um, and then and then the third one also. So did Arturo? I know one of them got life without the chance of parole, and one of them got life with the chance of parole. Exactly. So Arturo had life without parole. The second trial against Alfonso, life with parole. Uh-huh. So, um, I mean, that's, you know, that, that really, um, that's really, I mean, I'm sure that your testimony, that, because a lot of times, I mean, um, sentencing, uh, verdicts and sentencing can, can vary a lot, even for the same crime. So um, a lot of times people wouldn't get uh, life for rape. You know, they don't always get life for rape. And so I'm sure your testimony must have been incredibly moving, um, must have really played a big role in getting them to, getting the jury to give them such strong sentences. I hope so. And that that was my reasoning for doing it, that I, it was just so important for me that I could do whatever was... Uh, uh, able for, for me to do to, to make sure that they received a, such a strong sentence. Yes. That was important for me. Yes. 
Well, we need to take another break. We're talking to Monica Cora. Her book is called Kill the Silence, A Survivor's Life Reclaimed. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about college campus rape, a survivor's story, and the story... um, was written in the book that Monica Cora, the survivor, uh, recently wrote and, and was published. It's called Kill the Silence, A Survivor's Life Reclaimed. And um, so, Monica, why don't you tell us about, um, and it's interesting, we were just talking during the break, Monica is in Norway at this point for the um, release in Norway of her book and is coming back to Dallas and to America um, for to do public speaking and uh, to promote the book some more and talk about you know which her her experience which of course um, you know is what you're hoping will give courage to other women who are victims and we're going to be talking about that but I was just thinking um, this is not doing this is not good PR for America <laughs> you know it's going to be published. In, Norway and everyone, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be published in lots of other countries too, but I mean, you know, um, here this sweet Norwegian girl, innocent sweet Norwegian girl, runner, goes to America, gets invited on a scholarship, goes to America um, to fulfill her dream. I know you were, and maybe still are, an Olympic hopeful. Um, and, and uh, you know, these big bad people um, did this to her. It's not, uh, it's... <laughs> It's not really very good PR for for America. <laughs> no, but I, I I've never seen it that way because we know that this happens all over the world every day. It could have happened anywhere. So to me, that's no no hard feelings, not nothing like that um, against America or Dallas at all. Absolutely not. Well, do you think? I mean, you know, of course, that this is a huge problem on American college campuses. Um, uh, you know that that there are so many rapes. I mean, it has increased over the years to be just phenomenal. Now, I mean, it's it's just unbelievable, and it's even more unbelievable how many women don't report it. Um, and I know that's what your passion is to try to change that. Um, but I don't think it's not this. Uh, I mean, yes, rape happens all over the world, but. Well, in Norway, for example, it doesn't happen as much on college campuses as it does in America, does it? No, that's right. It doesn't. Um, we rarely hear about that um, on college campuses in Norway. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I have to say that I think alcohol is a problem on college campuses and attitudes. And I think we need to realize that we need to be more open about this. We really need to address it. As, as an issue, and for those who rape, realize that 
they are criminals and that deserves to be punished for it. Yes, and whether they're um, three men who are drug dealers and coming in the night uh, to make trouble or whether they're uh, guys at a frat party, right? Either way, they need to be punished. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. That's how I think it should be because rape is rape. It's a criminal act, and there's no excuse to do anything like that. Absolutely not. Well, I know that you've already started, before you went back to Norway just recently for the um, publishing of the, or the release of the book in Norway, um, before that you've been talking to a lot of women on campus. What are the kinds of things that they're telling you as far as why they haven't reported it or why they don't think that they would report it if it happened to them? What are they telling you? Right. So it's it's challenging. We know we we live in a victim blaming society, mm-hmm. and often we we seem to blame the victim. We ask all these questions: What were you wearing? Had you been drinking? Why were you out late at night? Questions that tend to leave the blame on the victim, and that's just mm-hmm. so wrong. So I know that a lot of girls struggle with feelings of shame and guilt, and that's why they don't want to talk about it. That's why they don't want to report. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what have you been doing and what, well, first of all, tell us about how you did manage to um, overcome um, this incredible experience. Um, I know you say that you, oh, yeah, there's this quote that you use um, uh, obstacles like stepping stones to achieve your goals. I like that, thinking of obstacles like stepping stones. So tell us how you did it. Right. So there's, of course, several things that goes in through a healing process like this. But I think the first and most important step um, towards healing for me was to be able to to open up, to be able to ask those around me for help um, and realizing that we're so much stronger when we stand together. That was my first step, to be able to talk about it and just empty my head of all of the thoughts and, and my body and heart of all the negative emotions, to be able to just talk it through with my family, with my friends, and just work my way through that hardship. And Mm -hmm. another thing for sure has been running or staying active, to just constantly, every day reminding myself of who I am and and who I want to be, to hold on to the identity as a runner and not letting that term victim take over my life or become my identity. That was important to me. Uh-huh. And but I so, know that go ahead. to recover from something like this, it, it is it is hard work. There's there's no way around that and it takes um a decision. For me that was important to just make that decision that I, I won't let this ruin my life and to remind myself about that decision every day where I felt like I struggled. Did you get therapy? Did you go to psychotherapy? I did. I went to a psychologist for several weeks um, after it happened. So in the beginning, I I saw her every day. And after a while, I started to see her once a week. And then I I dropped by whenever I felt like I needed to. So that was important, uh, an important part as well, for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what... What, um, also, of course, with rape, it affects a woman's um, attitude or or typically makes women fearful of being in relationships, especially sexual relationships, with men after that. Um, You're a very attractive woman. You must have have had and have um, lots of men (laughs) trying to date you and and have a relationship with you. Um, What, how... How has this affected um, your dating life, your social life? Right. So I have to say that I was lucky that I was in a safe and good relationship when this happened. So we were able to work our way through that together. Um, And to me, I I don't know why, but I never saw that connection. Uh, What happened to me that night, uh, the crime they committed, to me that has nothing to do with sex. 
um, and I was in a safe and good relationship. Um, and I never, I never saw that connection, the um, intimate relationship that I had to my boyfriend at the time, um, didn't have anything to do with this crime at all. So it was a good thing for me to be able to, to work through that and, and talk it over and just, work it um, through together. Um, Did you go so to I therapy really... together? No, no, we didn't. Um, that was all about just us talking um, and trusting each other. Hmm. So and I, think, I think with... that saved me. Yes, yes. Are you still with this man today? No, I'm not. Unfortunately, that didn't work out, but that's not because of the incident. We were, we were young, 20 and 24 years old, and figures out that we wanted different things out of life. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> That's how that ended. And so, but because of being in that safe relationship at the time, that has helped you to not be as scarred in that way in terms of new relationships. Absolutely. It helped me a lot. So I'm forever grateful for that. And I feel now that I, I live a normal life like that. I don't have any struggles when it comes to relationship or having intimate relationships like that. Uh-huh. That's really fortunate. So what are your plans when you come back? Tell us what you're going to be doing to help other women to come forward. Right. So for me now, it's full focus on public speaking to be able to go out there to share my story and just in hope to, to help others, um, that I can use my experiences and, and share them with others in hope that others can find hope and healing in that and take action in their own lives. So it's all about public speaking um, and, of course, to continue to promote my book, to share my story. And well, what about for women who don't have, I mean, you know, as a runner and certainly one of your caliber, um, you had already gotten so, obviously, you were so high up in terms of um, races that you won. And, I mean, otherwise, I wouldn't have given you a scholarship. Um, but what about for women who don't have, I mean, so it's so you have to be really disciplined to be a runner. It is, like you were saying, you know, of course, you have to get up early in the morning. You have to practice a lot. You have to be very disciplined about what you eat and your exercise and everything else and and. Um, and of course, that helped you too. You know, once to get back, getting back into that was very helpful as part of your recovery. So, what about for women who don't have um, something that t- that they're that dedicated to and that takes so much discipline? And you know, what about just um, somebody who was just a college student, maybe didn't know exactly what she wanted to be, you know, maybe she was a liberal arts major and, and something like this happens. What would you recommend to her? Right. So I, I think that it's important, no, no matter what it is, I think we all have a passion in life, something that, that we enjoy doing. Um, and I think it's important to, to turn to that. It doesn't have to be that you want to become a professional runner or a professional athlete. Any passion, if you like cooking or reading or writing, um, do that, turn to that, something that just gives you hope and something that you, you enjoy, that can give you a break from the hardship. If you're going through a tough time, it's important to try to work your way through it, but I think it's also important to take breaks, to just take care of yourself and to do things that you enjoy to do. How long did you, did you, you said that you took some time away. You dropped out of college for a while. Is that it? No, I did not. Um, it was a good thing that this happened right before Christmas um, mm. because I was able to travel back to Norway to spend Christmas with my family and really just calm down and work my way through the worst part of this, um, the uh-huh. first month after with my family. But I was determined that I needed to go back to Dallas um, to attend the spring semester right away. Um, so I went back after three weeks at home. I went back to Dallas and I started back up with my studies, wood running, and, and tried to really just turn back to normal life. Um, and I think that was the only right thing for me to do. Um, mm-hmm, the worst mm-hmm. thing would have been to stay at home, to just yes. hide inside and let fear take over my life. So I'm really yes. glad that I returned to normal life. Yes, yes, and I'm sure it must have been hard. Your parents were probably telling you, "No, you were in, <laughs> no way, you are not going back." <laughs> Dangerous <laughs> things happen there, right? 
Right, right. <laughs> I know that that's how they felt, but that's not what they told me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> they, they, they were able to tell me that you should go back. They knew, too, that if I would have stayed at home, this would have been a problem for the rest of my life. So yeah. they knew just as well as me that I had to go back and, and face my fears, in a way, to, to overcome them. Yes, yes. To um, um, And also, our time is time is going by, and I know I wanted, wanted you to mention that you do have a foundation and to give out your website. Yes, that's right. So I started a foundation to, as the title of my book, Kill the Silence Surrounding Rape and Abuse, and to also help other people that have been through challenging um, times in life that's been through something traumatic and to give them hope. So I started a foundation back in 2013, um, and a big part of it is the public speaking to create awareness events around the country and also internationally, um, and the speaking is a big part of it. So the webpage is uh, monicacorafoundation.org, okay. and it's Monica with K, Cora, K-O-R-R-A, foundation.org. Yes. And um, also on your website um, are you know interviews of you. There are videos. That video on on the homepage is amazing. And then there's the video that's great as well. A longer video of you telling your story and and you know with such bravery. So um, so I think that this is fabulous. I know that you you some of the statistics that you have is that more than eighty percent. Um, Let's see. Uh, more than eighty percent of sexual assaults at college for female college students go unreported, and fifteen of every sixteen rapists go free. I mean, those are staggering statistics. That's that's just so sad. And and, and of course, it's not always these men who, as I was saying before, it's not always um, these men who you know prowl the streets. Uh, criminals prowling the streets looking for trouble. It's also college students that women have to have the courage to, I think it, in a way it might be harder for some women to, um, to, to report it when it's, when it's a, a, a guy in, in college who has all these buddies and, as you were saying, blame the victim and they get, the woman gets, um, gets made fun of and, and blamed instead of the guy. Oh, how could this guy who does so well in, in his grades and all this, or as an athlete on the college football team, how could he possibly have done something wrong like that? So um, that's all very important. Let me spell out the name again. Monica Cora Foundation, M-O-N-I-K-A-K-O-O. Sorry, let's start again. Monica, M-O-N-I-K-A, Cora, K-O-R-R-A, foundation.org. So please check that out. And uh, Monica, thank you so much for sharing your story. And I'm so glad you're going to be coming back and uh, sharing your story with so many other people because we really have to do something uh, against this epidemic. Exactly. Thank you so much. You're welcome, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.